Good morning. My name is David Wollen, one of the elders here at New Covenant, part of the preaching team. And last week, Pastor Sunday preached on three full chapters in Acts 21 through 23. We heard about the story of Paul's journey back to Jerusalem after so many years abroad, sharing the gospel in the Gentile world of the Roman Empire, and then what happened to him when he got back to Jerusalem. And today we're going to cover the next three chapters, so you'll want your Bible open again uh, for chapters 24 through 26. And please feel free to grab one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you if you didn't bring one. Those are always available. And if it just so happens you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Bible. It's our gift to you as a church. We want you to have it. And in those Bibles, we'll be on page 991. 991. Would you pray with me now as we begin? Father, this is your holy word. Your revelation of yourself inspired every word, living, active, powerful to transform us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that. Would you use your word this morning to transform us, to be more like Christ and to see him with fresh eyes so we can trust him completely? Amen. So today's message is really part two of last week, and I'll just do a brief catch-up summary to get us back into the flow of the story. So Paul, as we said, was back on his, on his way back to Jerusalem with a very deep conviction. He knew that God was calling him back there, although on the journey, over and over again, the Holy Spirit confirms and reconfirms for him that when he gets there, chains and afflictions await him, and that was not to scare him, but to prepare him. And a few key verses along the way give us a sense of Paul's mind and heart during this journey. Acts 20, verse 24, Paul said to the Ephesian elders as he passed through, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. And then chapter 21, verse 13, getting nearer to Jerusalem now, Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It might have been that Paul had in mind the words of Jesus that he spoke on his way to Gethsemane to his disciples, saying, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. And Paul would know he was one of them. He used to be one of those persecutors until Jesus saved him. So he has no illusions about the mindset and the heart and the way that the Jewish leaders feel toward him. And sure enough, he'd only been in Jerusalem for a few days when he was recognized worshiping in the temple, and the crowd instantly whipped itself into a frenzy and tried to lynch him just like they had stoned Stephen so many years before. But this time, Roman soldiers stepped in, and they rescued Paul. And that's when Paul's trials began, trials in both senses of the word. Because from chapters 22 through 26, Paul will make a public defense 
five times in different settings, and we covered the first two last week. First, before the mob there at the temple, and then again before the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leaders. And in both cases, it got so violent that the soldiers, again, had to step in and physically uh, extract Paul to protect him and save his life. And then one of the key moments, one of the milestone moments of Paul's entire life, he never forgot it, Jesus came bodily and stood next to him. And what Jesus then said to Paul is key for our passage today. So you'll want this verse, we'll want this verse fixed in our minds. This is chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus said to Paul then, face to face, have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Up until this point, Paul had expected to die in Jerusalem, just following in the steps of Jesus. And he was willing to do that, but Jesus had a different plan for Paul, and now Paul knows the Jews aren't going to get what they want, at least not yet. Now he's on a mission to give testimony about Jesus in the place of the highest human authority on earth. And the next day, the Roman commander learns that the Jews are plotting to assassinate Paul and so he has Paul transferred overnight down to Caesarea, the seat of Roman power in Judea, so that he can stand trial before the Roman governor, a man named Felix. And that's where we left things last Sunday. And so now the scene opens in chapter 24. The court is now in session, Roman governor Felix presiding. And we read in verse 1, Five days later, Ananias the high priest came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. Now, one thing to note about the Roman judicial system, this is different from ours. In a criminal case, it was given to the accuser or accusers, in this case, to be the prosecutors. They were the prosecution, not the government. But like today, Enough money could buy a high-powered attorney to get the result that you wanted in court. And that's precisely what the high priest and the Jewish leaders did. They hired a shrewd attorney who knew how to work the system. Listen to his argument, continuing in verse 2. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you. He's talking to Felix. And reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because... Of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request that you would be kind enough to give kind enough to give us a brief hearing, for we have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple. So we apprehended him. By examining him yourself, you will, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. This approach was savvy. It put Paul in a really tough spot, and a little historical background puts this into focus. So in a Roman courtroom like this, the Jewish religious laws were completely irrelevant. So they had to convince Felix 
that Paul had broken the, the laws of Rome sufficiently to merit a death sentence. And so they accused Paul of sedition against Caesar, casting him as a ringleader of what looked like might become a future uprising. And if they could prove that to be true or just likely, Felix would have to act to preserve the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, because that was his job as governor. His job was to keep peace and stability, and that was not easy to do in a province like Judea. There were constant uprisings that had to be crushed, and Felix was not new to his job. He'd already earned a reputation for being ruthless in his suppression of any dissent to Roman rule. But, on the other hand, good relations with Jewish leaders was also very important. He knew his predecessor had been deposed by Caesar and sent into exile for failing to keep good relations with the Jews. So Felix knows his political future really depends upon good relations, the goodwill of the very people standing in front of him accusing Paul. Can you say conflict of interest? right? Paul's not like, likely to get a fair shake in this trial. And they take full advantage of that, and they open by flattering Felix, essentially saying, where your predecessor failed, most excellent Felix, you are succeeding. You've brought peace and reforms. We're happy with you. And some of that was half-truth. Some of that was untruth. But from here on out, it's all lies, they start to smear Paul. Did you notice what they called him? A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That label, that description appears nowhere else in the New Testament. At this point, in the Roman world, they were just called Christians. And among the Jews, they were known as the followers of the way. Nowhere did they call them the sect of the Nazarenes. However, the civilized and upper class still had a really strong aversion to people who were from Nazareth. Do you remember back in the Gospel of John when Philip, just having met Jesus and so excited, comes and tells Nathaniel about Jesus, and Nathaniel's response is, huh, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, that attitude is still present. So this label that Paul's a ringleader of, a, of the sect of the Nazarenes is an ethnic slur combined with an insinuation that Christianity really is just a sect of Judaism and therefore subject to Jewish religious authority. But their case, their actual case against him is really quite flimsy. There's not a shred of evidence. Nothing but insinuation preying upon the fears and the prejudice and the political vulnerability of Felix. And so they finish, and now it's time for Paul's defense and Paul had no way to prepare for this. He didn't know what they were going to say, and he didn't have an attorney. But perhaps Paul remembered the promise that Jesus had made in Luke 21. Jesus had said, they will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And now, Jesus makes good on his promise as Paul steps up to make his defense. 
But unlike the prosecution, Paul gives no words of flattery to Felix. He just gives simple, verifiable statements of fact. He had done nothing wrong. He had broken no laws, not Jewish, not Roman. When they found him in the temple, he was ritually pure and worshiping God according to the customs of the Jews. And Paul says, really, those who were there, who were eyewitnesses, they're the ones who ought to be here bringing charges, if there are any to bring. And then in verse 20, Paul finishes his argument saying, or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one statement, I shouted while standing among them, today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Paul chose his words well. He was open about worshiping God according to the way, those were his words, He refuted their charges with sound reasoning, and he finished by asserting that he believed that one day there would be a bodily resurrection of the dead, something that he knew the Sadducees and the Pharisees already disagreed about. But in reality, it's true. The resurrection lies at the very core of the gospel, and that's why he's on trial for the gospel. However, I think it's worth worth noticing here what Paul did not say. We've heard Paul speak many times now in Acts. Now, the most serious charge they made was that Paul was an agitator who threatened the Roman peace in various cities all over the Roman world. That was the only accusation with any sticking power in a Roman courtroom, and Paul could easily have engaged that argument. I think they kind of wanted him to. In reality, it was the Jews, not Paul, who had been the troublemakers in every place he'd been abroad, and definitely just now in Jerusalem. But Paul didn't take the bait. Paul focused instead just on his conduct in Jerusalem, and he made it clear that this was entirely about matters of faith, not politics. That's why it's so fascinating what Paul also did not say. We already know Paul's not shy about sharing his faith in Jesus. That's clear. Did you notice that he did not give his testimony? He didn't explain the gospel even a little. In fact, he didn't even say the name of Jesus. Paul would with Felix later on, but not yet. He was being led by the Spirit, as Jesus had promised, not only in what he should say, but also what he should not say. And for a non-Christian like Felix, or any non-Christian, both then and now, there's often a lot of ambiguity and confusion about what Christians believe, about what it really means to follow Christ. And sadly, today, especially in the media and social media, it's often the loudest, most obnoxious voices whose words and actions are heard. And there are many who use Christianity as a tool for their own personal gain or to advance their own agenda or for political ends. And consequently, so many non-Christians watching from the outside connect the two and they think that's what the message of the Bible must be. They're confused about what the gospel really is. Or worse, they think they know. They think they've heard it and they've completely missed it. That's why sometimes a non-believer's first step toward Christ is discovering what Christianity is not. That's one of the reasons why here at New Covenant we so often talk about the importance 
of engaging people. We use engage to describe the first step in someone's journey toward Christ. And of course, engagement must be followed by evangelism, of course, but there's value in recognizing a person's context and just engaging them where they're at. In his commentary on Acts, John Stott wrote this. He said, Paul never proclaimed the good news in a vacuum, but always in a context, the personal context of his hearers. And here, for Paul, dismantling the Jews' false assertions against him and Christianity was not only a wise legal defense strategy, but it was an effective first step in his own future witness to Felix. And as it turns out, that witness will continue. But right now, Paul's depending on the Spirit to give him the words he needs. And now Paul rests. He's done with his defense. And now it's up to Felix. What will Felix decide? And Felix is totally stuck. He knows very well already that those Jewish leaders had planned to ambush and assassinate Paul. Remember? Lysias, the commander, had sent a letter explaining the whole thing. It went with Paul. Felix read that letter. He knew the people standing in front of him accusing Paul had planned to kill him. What's the most likely outcome if he releases Paul? They're going to kill him, which is just more lawlessness, another problem for Felix. And who knows? He doesn't know this sect of the Nazarenes. Are they going to become another uprising? He doesn't know. But he also can't condemn Paul to death because he hasn't broken any laws. So Felix is stuck. And he does what most politicians do when they're backed into a corner. He stalls. He obfuscates. He looks for a way out and he says, I'm going to have to wait for Felix to come up and I'll consult with him and then I'll decide your case. But in reality, he has no plan to do that. His plan is to preserve the stalemate. And we can see that by what he tells the centurion, that he, needs, that he gives instructions that Paul be kept under guard, but to give him some freedom to let his friends attend to his need, like food and clothing. And so clearly he's expecting that Paul's stay is going to be a long one, though not in a prison cell. Paul will be chained 24-7 from this point onward to Roman guards. But that's not the end. Court is adjourned. And several days later, Felix and his wife send for Paul to continue the conversation. Isn't that interesting? But now it's not a courtroom setting. Now it's a private conversation. And verse 24 tells us that they listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. So now Paul is sharing the gospel with Felix. And it says, Paul spoke about righteousness, self-control, the judgment to come. Tough subjects, every one, and all of them made Felix afraid. You can almost hear his discomfort dismissing Paul quickly as he says, leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. And it turns out he did that quite often, but not because he wanted to take further steps closer to Jesus. The text tells us Felix just wanted a bribe. So at the end of the day, Felix turns out to just be an unrepentant, corrupt politician. And so Paul languished in chains there in Caesarea for two years. 
That's the last verse of chapter 24, and I really want it to sink in. Two long years. Paul was waiting two years, justice postponed, and for that matter, injustice postponed. Just nothing was happening. Nothing that Paul could see. Two years would have been enough time for Paul to go on another missionary journey. This would have been an opportunity, enough time for him to get some productive ministry work done. Who knows? If he'd been out there doing what he did best and preaching the word, how many more churches could have been planted? How many more believers would have believed in Jesus? Why would, why would God put Paul on the sidelines? Why would he assign him to wait, doing nothing for two years and no indication of how long that time of waiting would last? You know, sometimes I think what we think God should be doing in our lives doesn't match up with what he's actually doing in our lives. So we struggle to see what God is doing because it appears to us that he's doing nothing. Can you relate to that? In my own life, I remember this in my late or my, my mid-20s. I was fresh out of college with a biblical studies degree and not a clue what to do with it. And I just remember feeling so desperate and praying, God, help me. I don't know where to go. I'm in a dead-end job. I don't know what my future should be, and I need help. And the Lord answered that prayer, but it took a long time for me. At least it felt long. It was months before he intervened and gave me a direction to go. And I share that not because it compares with Paul's situation, but because it compares with what waiting looks like for most of us most of the time. Waiting on the Lord is a vital part of the Christian life, of what it means to grow in Christ. And most of the waiting we do is in mundane things, everyday things. I'm thinking maybe like of a, of a new mom who's got a newborn for the first time and no longer is she doing what she used to do. And then postpartum sets in and she's just waiting. God, where are you? Help or it could be someone experiencing a long season of prolonged unemployment or maybe married to an unbeliever with a hard heart that is showing no signs of softening. Or perhaps a season of sickness, long-term health struggles. Or for all of us, eventually reaching that age when no longer can we do the things that we used to do. More and more, we're limited. Life is full of these seasons, these valleys of waiting on the Lord, and sometimes intense suffering comes with it. But here, in Paul's story, the Holy Spirit is showing us, and this is our first point of two today, that God is sovereign and working, even when we are suffering and waiting. God is sovereign and working, even when we are suffering and waiting. Now, Yesterday, working on this sermon, I had this song stuck in my head. The lyrics are, will be familiar to you. We sing them often in church. It goes, you are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us when beyond our understanding. You're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. Paul had not been forgotten by God. God was working in Paul's time of waiting, 
but it was happening. What he was doing was all behind the scenes geopolitically. It was like a giant catapult slowly getting cinched back into firing position. Click, click, click. The tension is building and building and getting stronger and stronger. And when the time is right, God's going to put Paul in the seat of that catapult, and it's going to be powerful enough to launch him all the way to Rome. But Paul can't see that. All he sees is that every once in a while, Felix calls him in to talk about nothing in particular and then dismisses him again. But in the in-between time, Felix is really quite busy. The historian Josephus chronicles what was happening during this time in history, the very years Paul was in prison in Caesarea. So there was an uprising building. The Jews had become very agitated in certain places, and in Syria, which was part of the province of Judea, a huge uprising happened, and Felix took the army, the Roman army, to put it down, and he did it with such shocking ferociousness. It was so bloody, so egregious, so many were killed that the Jews sent a delegation to Rome asking for Felix's removal and punishment, and Caesar agreed. And at this point, it was Nero who had come into power. So it's really something, if Nero agrees with you, that that was a little bit too bloody, right? And so two years after Paul's trial, Nero recalls Felix and sends a new governor in his place by the name of Portius Festus. I kept thinking, poor Portius. I wouldn't want to be Portius. His two predecessors had not fared well. And now, more than ever, Judea had become a pressure cooker, more than before. And it was Festus's job to fix it. And the first thing he needed to do was go make nice with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he did that as soon as he arrived and it had been two years, but Paul was still at the very top of the agenda for the Jewish leaders. And as soon as they met Festus, that's what they asked him for. Would you do us a favor and send back Paul to Jerusalem so that we can have a trial here? Fortunately, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, or in this case, the heart of the governor. And Felix says no. Why? We don't really know. Maybe he was wary. He knew enough to... Be wary of these Jewish leaders to not trust what they were saying. Maybe he just wanted to make sure that it was on home turf for him. But in any case, Paul is going to get a retrial. So for this exchange, Luke does not give us the blow by blow like he did with Felix. All we get is a two-verse summary. This is chapter 25, verses 7 and 8, which we'll read. It says, when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. So it's just like last time before Felix. And then Paul made his defense, and this is a summary. Neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. So that was the trial right there. And now Festus realizes he's in a really tight spot. But unlike Felix before him, who knew that the Jews were planning to assassinate Paul, Festus has no idea of their intentions. What he does know is that he really needs their goodwill. He's fresh off the boat. He needs an early win. So he asks Paul if he's willing to be tried in Jerusalem. And Paul recognizes this is his opportunity. Jesus had said, 
you're going to testify about me in Rome. And so Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. That had been his right as a Roman citizen from the beginning, but this was his first opportunity to invoke it, to invoke that right. And so Festus, taking some advice from his, from his counsel, recognizes this is his own way to get out of the predicament, and he agrees, and he says, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go, and now it's complete. Paul is ready to be catapulted all the way to Rome, but first, God has one more witness for Paul to give, and arguably, this is, in many categories, the biggest moment for the witness of the gospel recorded in the book of Acts. As it happens, King Agrippa II and his queen had come to Caesarea right at this moment to welcome Festus. And Festus confides in Agrippa about his dilemma. He doesn't know what to put in the letter to send with Paul to Caesar explaining the situation. He doesn't really get it. And it so happens that Agrippa is already interested to hear from Paul anyway. He's informed about the way Paul's name is well known. He and Agrippa have never met. And he'd like to hear what Paul has to say for himself. But before we get there... Who in the world is King Agrippa II? This is so interesting. Turns out, he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. He's the grandson of Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. He's the son of Herod Agrippa, who in Acts 12, we learned, had the apostle... um, the apostle James, killed with the sword, and had then, seeing that it pleased the Jews, had Peter arrested also. And now he's here. The fourth generation of Herods is coming face to face with the very gospel that his family has persecuted for generations. Whether he's aware of the fact, we don't know. But it's an auspicious audience. And Paul knows very well who he is. So picture this assembly. This is chapter 25, verse 23. It says, Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp, and they entered the auditorium with the military commanders and the prominent men of the city. This is a scene of a royal assembly, the most powerful people in Judea. The king, the governor, the military commanders, all the prominent and powerful people. It had become a celebrity trial. Everyone's there. He has everyone's attention, and they're all gathered together in one place, and it was God's hand who had brought them there. God had been preparing this moment for two years so that it could come about that the promise of Jesus from Luke 21 could be fulfilled down to the very detail. Listen again to that promise. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. And boy, does Paul bear witness. He shares the testimony that we're already well familiar with, having followed Paul all the way through the book of Acts. He tells everyone there how he grew up in Jerusalem and that he studied at the feet of the greatest rabbi of the time and how he was zealous as a Pharisee more than anyone else for the Jewish law, and how he'd have persecuted and opposed the early church, not only in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, but that he'd followed them from city to city, persecuting them, putting them in prison, killing them if he could. 
And then how Paul had met the last person he could have ever expected on the road to Damascus, and how Jesus had revealed himself there and commissioned Paul to preach the gospel both to Jew and Gentile. And then Paul goes on and begins to speak about the resurrection of Jesus, and Festus can't contain himself anymore. He's a Roman. He's new to Jerusalem. He has no background in the Hebrew scriptures, let alone the way. He doesn't know who Jesus is. And so in chapter 26, verse 24, Festus just blurts out, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. It sounds like crazy talk to him. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. That would be Festus. But what else? It's also a stumbling block to the Jews. Agrippa is a Jew. Now, in Agrippa's mind, it was Agrippa who had summoned Paul to stand before him and speak. In Agrippa's mind, it was Agrippa in royal robes with all the freedom and authority. But in reality, it was King Jesus who had summoned Agrippa and everyone else to hear his faithful servant, Paul, testify to the king of kings. Spiritually, Paul was not the one in chains. Agrippa was. Festus was. And all the rest. And although he was a prisoner, Paul had all the freedom and authority in Christ. He may have been dressed in the soiled tunic of a prisoner But he knew royal robes were waiting for him in glory that Jesus would give to him. And so Paul, he knew this down to the very core of his being, and it gave him an audacity, an audacious boldness that he speaks with. And so the reality of this courtroom from a heavenly perspective is completely inverted. It's flipped. And this leads us to our second and final point that, like Paul, In Christ, we also have the freedom and authority to give a bold witness to the gospel to anyone and in any situation. Listen now to Paul's reply to the governor's outburst and then to the king. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. In other words, the ministry of Jesus was very public. The resurrection and the outcome of the, resur- of the resurrection was very public. All the things that happened in the early church was public. It wasn't secret. And now you can... Just imagine Paul turning his head from Festus and locking eyes with Agrippa. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. You can just hear the courtroom gasp at the audaciousness of this prisoner. Every person has a choice to make when they hear God's words spoken to them. You can feel Agrippa squirming in his seat. How does a Jewish king, with the authority over the temple, even authority to appoint the high priest, answer a question like that? Do you believe the prophets? Well, if Agrippa says yes, 
He gives credence to Paul's message, and there's no telling what Paul's next question might be. But saying no, that's not an option either. So Agrippa answers rhetorically and said, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? And Paul replies with so much grace. He says, I wish before God that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who are listening to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. God used Paul as a fork in the road for Agrippa and every person seated in that courtroom. A fork in the road that forced a decision, do you believe? And I want to close today with just a word for anyone who is like Agrippa and you're not sure what to make of these claims about Jesus. So let that question be your question today. Do you believe? Do you? Hearing about God's judgment made Felix afraid, enough that he sent Paul away. Agrippa heard and responded to the question by deflecting it. But how will you respond? Do you believe? And this is a question for all of us. All who follow Jesus, we affirm and reaffirm this every day of our lives. Every time we come to worship, we reaffirm this. Do you believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Do you believe that the wages of sin is death and that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord? Do you believe that Jesus died in the place of sinners, that his sacrifice pays the penalty of sin for those who by faith are trusting in Jesus? Do you believe in the resurrection, an historical fact of history? And if you do, do you know, do you believe that your own resurrection is a future fact of history. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, you see us. Every person. You see right through us. Every detail. You know if our faith is strong or weak or non-existent. But your son is the author of faith. And so we ask, help our unbelief. Some of us are in a season of waiting. Maybe a season of waiting with suffering. Lord, would you help us to seek you and trust you? Give your comfort. Help us to believe that you are faithful. Give us strength to wait. And Lord, help us, like Paul, to recognize the opportunity that you put in front of us to share our reason for the hope that lies within. And Father, I pray for that person who is undecided, unpersuaded about Jesus. Oh Lord, please cause a seed of faith to be planted and may it grow. Holy Spirit, help us all to take our next step toward Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.